Yeah, so so this really is is the crux of of I think the uh, the corner we painted ourselves into after we had conducted these ten interviews. Our challenge was then to synthesize what everyone had said and to see whether there was were some commonalities. And and so in the last chapter of the book, that's what we try to do. We we try to put everything together, and we come up with what we call our our three P approach that. Um, as it pertains to investing, there are some common principles, there's a process, and there's a path to that perfect portfolio. And and the title of our book, I should emphasize, focuses on this pursuit of a perfect portfolio. And so as as I'll sum up um, and, and to give away the punchline, there isn't one particular portfolio that is that, that fits all. But welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Steve Forrester, professor of finance at Ivy Business School and co-author of the book, In the Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio, the stories, voices, and key insights of the pioneers who shape the way we invest. He wrote the book in collaboration with MIT's Andrew Lowe. In this discussion, Steve walks us through the investing luminaries highlighted in the book and discusses their contributions and what investors can learn from each of them. As we learn in the end, finding the perfect portfolio is different for different people, but there are seven key principles that Steve shares that can help guide us in finding that perfect portfolio. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Steve Forrester. Steve, how are you? Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. We're excited to talk to you about um, the book that you uh, published with Andrew Lowe from MIT. The title of the book is In the Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio, and I think this idea is um, a really interesting one. I think we're all sort of, a lot of investors are always in search of the perfect portfolio and it, it tends to be uh, hard for many to try to find what that perfect portfolio actually is. But I wanted to start by asking you sort of what gave you the idea to write this book with Andrew? What was sort of the, the genesis of what you guys tried to tackle here? Sure. It, it really stemmed from an intellectual curiosity. Uh, for decades, we had been teaching investments, primarily focusing on the theory, but we wondered what, uh, from a practical perspective, is there a, a perfect portfolio out there, a port portfolio of assets that investors uh, should should have? And we also wanted to take a look at uh, the contributors to where we are right now in the investment world in terms of the strategies and the products um, that are being offered. What were the academic and the practitioner research contributions? Um, we had, uh, I'd written a, a textbook before and we wanted to reach a, a broader audience of, uh, of all investors. And so when I came up with this initial idea, I immediately reached out to Andrew Lowe, who I knew from my days as a PhD student at Wharton and when he was a young and, and new uh, professor there. Um, and I reached out to see if he'd be interested in collaborating and uh, he immediately said yes. And that was amazingly over, over a decade ago. So this has been a long process. 
in the book, you are sort of aggregating the wisdom of some great investors and some of the greatest researchers in the academic world of, uh, that are out there. But how did you go about selecting that group of investors? What was your process and your methodology for the identification of those individuals? Sure. Well, it, it helped that uh, that Andrew knew each of these individuals personally, so that really opened uh, opened a lot of doors. Um, it was clear, given the subject matter, that we would want to start with uh, Harry Markowitz, uh, as you know, the the inventor of what we call modern portfolio theory, and uh, he uh, he agreed to be part of our book project, and so. Once we had him on board, it was a lot easier to get other luminaries involved, um, and we decided to then focus on uh, many of the Nobel Prize winning laureates who had contributed in the investments area, uh, Bill Sharp, Gene Fama, Myron Scholes, Bob Merton, and, and Bob Schiller. So we were delighted to have them all on board. We didn't want this to be just a, an academic perspective. Uh, we wanted to also look at some of the uh, best practitioners out there. And so we were fortunate um, to get uh, Jack Bogle's involvement before his his passing. Marty Leibowitz and, and Charlie Ellis, very well respected in the, the industry. And our final interviewee, which was sort of a homecoming for all of us, uh, was Jeremy Siegel, uh, best-selling author, as you know. And, and that was a fun interview because uh, we got to go back to Philadelphia where Andrew had taught and, and I was a student and where Jeremy was. So it, it turned out to be a, a great collection that we were able to put together. To work through the interview, we're going to work through all the individual chapters of the book. And for each chapter, you featured one of the you know famous researchers or investors um, that, you, that you featured in the book. I'm wondering first, though, you, you did this over the course of 10 years. So were, were these interviews actually done you know, periodically over the course of the past 10 years? Uh, yes, uh, we, we started out uh, with Harry Markowitz with a, with a phone interview. And um, subsequent to that, we, we thought that uh, it would be great for prosper pros prosperity's sake to have video interviews. And so we followed up a few years later with, with Harry Markowitz. And so um, these were conducted over, over quite, a number of, uh, quite a number of years. You mentioned Markowitz, and he and he was the first chapter. And you know, as you mentioned, you know, he's considered the father of modern portfolio theory. So one of the things that struck me about his chapter is you would think Markowitz would probably, you know, if, if he's giving advice about the perfect portfolio, you think he would probably have a very complex formula he might, you know, advocate. But in, in reality, it might have, it was a little bit the opposite of that. Can can you talk a little bit about what, about what Markowitz told you? Sure, you're absolutely right. There there's some complexity, and and yet perhaps paradoxically. There's a simplicity in terms of uh, what we learned from Harry Markowitz. What seems obvious now was really a revelation 70 years ago um, when Markowitz was really the first one to, to show, and certainly in a mathematical sense, what really mattered in terms of forming a portfolio of, of stocks is how their prices varied relative to one another. And so he was able to put together a framework, a process, really a discipline to, to analyze stocks as part of a portfolio. And what he was able to show, and, and it was almost magical in, in some sense, is that there is a free lunch, a free lunch in the, uh, in the context of being able to get a higher expected return 
for a given level of risk or a lower level of risk for a given level of expected returns, when instead of just uh, investing in, in one stock, we would invest in a portfolio of, of stocks. And so that was really his major breakthrough. In, in technical terms, he developed through mathematics what he called an efficient frontier. And, and as I've described, it's, it's imagine the universe of all possible investments of stocks that we could invest in one by one by one. What's their expected return? What's their risk? The efficient frontier shows what happens when I combine these individual stocks and form portfolios. And what it turns out through the, the math that he used is that we have a dominant set of risky portfolios that have the property of having the highest expected return for a level, given level of risk or the lowest risk for a given level of expected return. And so these are the efficient uh, portfolios that, that we should be focusing on uh, as investors. And Mark would say, you, you don't have to get it completely right. As, as long as you're, you're close, then that's going to uh, go a long way in terms of enhancing your portfolio's return or expected return relative to the amount of risk that you have. And what's, what's fascinating is that 70 years later, this model that he created, that we can not only apply to stocks or securities within a particular asset class, but we can apply this across asset classes. And this is a technique that is, is still used today as we think about forming our portfolio. So there's, this, there's the complexity of the math behind it, but there's the simplicity of the bottom line of Markowitz would recommend buying a well-diversified uh, exchange-traded fund ETF, buy a number of, of bonds, and that will probably get you, uh, get you close in terms of what an optimal portfolio is. Yeah, you mentioned the idea of not getting it completely right. And I guess that's how they sort of tie together. You know, if you don't have to use these advanced formulas, you know, you can use a pretty simple portfolio and get yourself most of the way there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so we don't even have to necessarily use his, his efficient frontier model per se, but it's the concepts and the importance of, of diversification that uh, really was a game changer. The next person you spoke to is William Sharp, who uh, developed the capital asset pricing model. And, you know, he had an interesting series of four principles he uses when, when he was thinking about the perfect portfolio. He said, uh, diversify, economize, personalize, and contextualize. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what he meant by that. Sure. Let's go through uh, each, each one uh, separately. So the, the first one, he actually expanded it to be diversify, 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 really to, to emphasize um, this important part. Um, and, and you mentioned the capital asset pricing model that, that Bill Sharp is, is uh, most uh, well known for. Um, what, what's fascinating, what, what we learned from him, a um, little bit of a, a side note here, is that uh, you've probably heard the acronym CAPM to describe his model. What's interesting is he always refers to it as the CAPM, not CAPM, but the CAPM. So uh, we thought that was an interesting uh, tidbit, although thousands and perhaps millions of business school uh, students, thousands of professors refer to it as, uh, as the CAPM. But in that model, um, it, it assumes that you've got rational investors and they're trying to maximize their expected return for a given level of risk. They can borrow and lend at a risk-free rate. What uh, Sharp was able to show extending this efficient frontier model of Markowitz is, is that 
based on that, the way that we would price an individual security is to uh, look at its its risk relative to the overall market. And in fact, all investors in, 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 this, in this world of rational investors, they would only want to invest in the market portfolio. So that, that's really what's behind this first principle. You want to be diversified. And in fact, for your risky asset, simply invest in the market portfolio. To the second idea of, of economize, really he's referring to minimizing the cost that, that you're going to take on. So don't, don't incur any unnecessary management fees or trading costs. The third one in terms of personalization is that you want to take into account that, that um, every individual, every situation is, is unique. And so... Uh, for example, if you work in the tech industry, then you're going to be exposed to more tech risk. And so you might want to take that into account in terms of uh, what your overall investments might be. And the last one, contextualize. And, and I think this comes uh, and is somewhat related to uh, the next chapter of our book uh, feature, featuring Gene Fama. Um, but, but this whole context of, of what uh, are referred to as efficient markets, what Sharp meant by that is that uh, if, if you're betting um, that uh, you, you think, for example, a stock is overvalued, let's suppose it's Amazon that you think is overvalued, before you make that bet, pause and, and put that into context. Think about how many thousands and thousands of professional investors uh, have participated in in the market buying and, and selling Amazon Amazon stock so that it's priced the way it is. So if you think it's not properly priced, then that implies that 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 you know something that that you think all other market participants uh, don't know. And that might be might be the case, but uh, but put it into context. The next person you spoke to is Eugene Fama, um, who's you know probably the, one of the biggest advocates out there of efficient markets. So you know if I had to guess going in before I read the chapter, I would have said his advice was buy the market portfolio and call it a day and go do something else. Um, I'm wondering, is that pretty close to what it was? It's pretty close, and, and in fact, it really depends on which Gene Fama you were talking to. And by that, I mean, were you talking to the Gene Fama? between 1973 and 1992, or are you talking to the, the post-1992 Gene Fama? And I'll, I'll explain why those dates are, are, are significant. Um, and really, to, to paraphrase uh, John Maynard Keynes, um, Fama's, Fama's um, perspective is, is that uh, he believes in something, but if there are new research results, then he will change his mind. So Fama, as you mentioned, is, is best known for what we call the efficient markets hypothesis, which suggests that, that prices fully reflect all relevant information. So what you see is what you get. And that's meant to be a testable hypothesis. And Fama, as an empiricist, has gone about, as have many other academics, and, and tested this, uh, this, this theory. The, the issue that, that really is one that, that Fama has highlighted is that anytime we test the efficient markets hypothesis, we're actually testing an asset pricing model such as the capital asset pricing model. As, as Fama notes, the, the asset pricing and, and market efficiency are really joined at the hip. By that, he means that if we come up with a test and we reject market efficiency, it could be that markets are not efficient, 
but it could also be that we just don't have the right asset pricing model. And so this is where some of Fama's major contributions have been looking at and testing models like the capital asset pricing model. So back to 1973. So Bill Sharp had come up with the capital asset pricing model, had developed it in 1964 when it was first published. And there were a series of, of empirical tests then to see whether or not it was uh, a good model. And some of the tests were fairly primitive. One of the best known tests and, and a technique that is still used today was developed by Fama and his co-author James Macbeth, and, and it became known as the Fama-Macbeth methodology. Basically, they tested the capital asset pricing model to see whether or not stocks are the the the, um, the the price of stocks or the expected return on stocks is really driven by this market risk, which became known as as beta, a measure of relative risk. How risky is a stock relative to the market as a whole? And they found support for the capital asset pricing model. So again, if you were to ask uh, Gene Fama in 1973, what was the perfect portfolio? He would have told you, buy the market portfolio and call it a day. Fast forward to 1992, 1993, Gene Fama was collaborating and, and still continues to collaborate uh, with, uh, with Ken French. And what they came up with in 1992 and 1993 were two studies that, that re really revolutionized um, uh, our, our um, thought process in terms of asset pricing models and what drives a, a stock price. And it, it had some major implications on how we view the capital asset pricing model. So what they did is, is they came up with some more sophisticated tests of the capital asset pricing model not only looking at um, seeing whether stocks or portfolios of stocks are related to or driven by the overall market, but they added a couple of other, uh, what they called risk factors as well. And, and one tried to capture the difference in returns between small stocks and large stocks. So call it a size factor. And the other uh, tried to capture return differences between a portfolio of value stocks and a portfolio of growth stocks. So think of value stocks as low price to book stocks and, and growth stocks, high price to book stocks. What they found is that when you add these two factors, then any relationship between stocks or portfolios and the market disappears. And what you're left with is these two other important factors that dominate this, this size factor and this uh, value slash growth factor. So what, how has, um, how has uh, uh, Gene Fama's thinking in terms of the portfolio changed? Fama would now say, well, you should still start with the market portfolio as, as the basis of your perfect portfolio, but then you should tilt toward small stocks versus large stocks and tilt toward value stocks versus, uh, versus growth stocks. One other um, key piece of advice that, that, that came out of, uh, uh, of FAMA's uh, recommendations, and this is something that I think uh, having been involved with um, on pension boards and on endowment boards, where um, the role of the board members are often to determine what fund managers to hire and, and fire. Oftentimes, those decisions are based on the past performance in particular over the last five years.
based on Fama's research, he would say there's so much noise in those past five-year returns that uh, you shouldn't be basing your decision strictly on, on that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, as you mentioned before, you talked to Jack Bogle, and it probably wouldn't surprise anyone that he uh, advocated an index-based approach. But there were a few things I picked up in that chapter that were actually a little bit surprising to me. And those were his, his views on rebalancing, his views on foreign stocks, and also his views on owning other diversifying asset classes besides bonds. I'm wondering what were your, what were your major takeaways from Bogle? Sure. So, so clearly, as the founder of, of the Vanguard Group that, uh, that, that really brought uh, low-cost um, index investing in, in mutual funds to the forefront, um, it's no surprise that he was a big proponent of uh, low-cost index funds. Um, the, the whole notion of, of rebalancing is that he felt it was important as one, um, one goes through different life cycles to change that, that mix that you might have, uh, for example, between equities and, and bonds. And so as a, a sort of a rule of thumb that uh, that Bogle liked to, to follow was um, think about as you're, you're younger, the proportion that you would have of your portfolio in bonds should roughly be equal to your age. So if you're a 20 year old, you should be invested roughly 80% in equities and 20% and in fixed income. But then uh, keep that proportion of investment in bonds to be similar to to your age. So when it's six, when you're age sixty, invest only forty percent in in equities and sixty percent in bonds. Now Vogel still recommended that whether it's stocks or bonds, it should still be through some kind of index fund vehicle. One of the uh, one of the um, couple of the, the surprises is, is that. While many uh, of our luminaries um, um, advocated for investing uh, a large portion of your investments uh, globally, uh, Bogle was really a, a proponent of uh, first and foremost investing in the U.S. market and, and at most 20% uh, internationally. And, and the reason for that uh, was, was really threefold. One is he felt that, that US, um, the, the U.S. had the best investor protection laws and, and the best legal institutions. Uh, second reason was that with, with so many uh, multinational U.S.-based companies, you could actually get some implicit uh, international diversification simply by investing in these, these U.S. companies. And third, while he acknowledged that uh, over the long run, one might expect higher uh, returns, higher risk as, as well with international investments, he felt that the marginal benefit might be um, very minimal. So even if I increase my international exposure by 20 to 40%, and let's suppose over the long run, I expected um, global funds to uh, outperform U.S. funds by, let's say, 2%. Um, then that would only mean a 0.4% per year uh, benefit um, by this increased uh, exposure and, and more uncertainties from an investor protection uh, perspective. In terms of the other assets, he felt that uh, a small proportion of your investments should be in emerging markets. And, uh, and the other one, and, and he actually prefaced his, his comments when, when Andrew was interviewing me, he said, you better be sitting down now, because he actually uh, thought that a small proportion uh, should be invested in gold. And, and so just for, for some of those 
um, really um, just in case kind of events that, that might happen, you've got some kind of protection. Of course, he was uh, very well known for what he, what he came up with as the cost matters hypothesis, a sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, variation of Fama's efficient markets hypothesis. He came up with cost markets matters hypothesis. And, and really there, what he was saying is that in aggregate, investors who are, are speculating uh, and actively investing should on average um, expect to lose the equivalent of the cost that you're going to incur. And so that's where, again, he was emphasizing the index funds. I think the final comment I would make about Jack Bogle is um, one of the things he was uh, most well known for is what has often been referred to as masterly inactivity. Um, and his famous phrase was, don't do something, just stand there. So when somebody's telling you, you've got to take action, you've got to sell, you've got to buy, he would say, just uh, just stand there and keep your money invested in that index fund. The, the cost matters hypothesis is interesting because, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think in many ways, Bogle was more an advocate of low costs than he was of indexing. He was an advocate of both, but I think his real focus was on keeping costs down. You're absolutely right. And, 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 uh, it, it's almost like, um, and, and some of the history was that, that he almost fell into this index investing idea, but you're absolutely right. It, it was the low cost that he was uh, starting out with. I have to admit, I was thankful when I read the Myron Scholes chapter that uh, in order to build a perfect portfolio, I don't have to do any advanced option pricing because I, ha I had some bad memories from taking the CFA exam of, of doing all that. But uh, he, he had an interesting chapter. And, you know, he, and he, he talked about when building the portfolio, the perfect portfolio, he talked about focusing on terminal wealth, compound gains. And he also focused on the impact of tails, tail risk, both on the positive and the negative side. So what, what were your major takeaways from him? Yeah, I, I think he had probably the most unique perspective um, uh, of all of our interviewees. And, and for him, the, he really turned things around on, on, on its head. And, and for him, um, the perfect portfolio was really about risk management. And, and, and the end point is really the starting point. By that, he meant that you should be thinking about what kind of terminal wealth you want to end up with that with, and do what you can in terms of uh, avoiding uh, the so-called downside tail risk. So if, if we think of, of sort of a normal distribution, even though stocks don't follow a, a perfect normal distribution, but think of this, this bell shape. And so we've got the, the two different types of tails on the left-hand side. Those are the, the, the downside tails and on the right side, the, the upside tails. And, and so uh, what Scholes was saying is, is that um, you should try to structure your portfolio and, and actively manage that portfolio so that, that, that you can try to mitigate these, uh, this, this downside tail risk and uh, conversely try to take advantage of the positive tail risk. And one way that, that one could try to do that, and, and this is where it actually ties into his uh, well-known uh, Black-Scholes option pricing models, is to uh, take a look at the information that we can get from the derivatives market. And in particular, the well-known VIX index, which is often known as the fear, the fear index, but, but really essentially captures what investors expect the overall market uh, volatility to be over the next year or, or two or f even five years. A and so where this VIX number comes from, 
is really reverse engineering the Black-Scholes model and backing out what the implied volatility is. And, and so if we look at, uh, at the average volatility of the U.S. market over a long period of time, it's somewhere in the 16 to 18% range as measured by a standard deviation. And so that's captured in the VIX index. So what, what Scholes advocated is that keeping that in mind as some kind of long-term average, um, look at what the VIX is today. And, and if it's substantially lower than that, then he would advocate for taking on um, more risky stock investments. And conversely, when it's high, then pull back on the amount of risk that, that, that you're taking on. And, and so the, the other way that he turned things upside down was to, to really start with a, a target kind of risk measure that, that, that you want to have, and then your, your asset mix should fall out of uh, what will get you to that, uh, that target, uh, that target uh, uh, risk level. What's also uh, uh, kind of ironic, um, given that, that Scholes was actually involved in, in developing one of the first index funds, um, which was actually for a pension plan for Samsonite luggage, um, he's very cautious about um, being aware of, of uh, for investors, being aware of some of the risks that are inherent in simply buying an index fund. Um, uh, an example, and, and it, it perhaps it's it's an extreme one, but but let's suppose um, in the late 1990s, I uh, I lived in Finland and I was buying uh, an index that replicated the Finnish stock market. Well, um, in the late 1990s, 90% of that uh, index's value would be driven by one stock, Nokia. So that's a, an extreme example, but. Um, the point is that that um, even where we have seen more recently where, where tech stocks have had a, a great run, then disproportionately compared to historical times, there's more of a risk that we take on in an index fund with this exposure to, uh, to, to tech stocks. So um, some very interesting perspectives that, that he had, and again, focus on risk management. Robert Merton also had some pretty interesting perspectives, and there were two that kind of uh, stuck out to me. One was that he was focusing on ways to control risk beyond just standard diversification. And the other is he, he did, it seemed like, tend to advocate using professional managers versus being a do-it-yourself investor, which is, you know, in opposition to what some of the other guys said. So I'm wondering, what were your major takeaways from Merton? Sure. So, so Merton, uh, Merton's starting point is really uh, the framework that, that Markowitz had, had created. Try to maximize your, your returns for a given level of, of risk. And, uh, and Merton made some major contributions in terms of modeling things like the, the, the standard capital asset pricing model and how we could then uh, think of that in terms of uh, over many periods. But beyond this, this notion of, uh, of uh, risk as um, stock volatility, Merton was saying that, that we should think about risk in a different way. Think about risk in terms of, of um, not being able to meet your retirement needs. And, and he had an interesting perspective in terms of, in theory, what each of us should have in terms of our, our, our perfect portfolio. So step back and, and think about, let's suppose you want to have a certain amount of money at retirement so that you could live comfortably. And, and let's suppose adjusted for inflation, um, what you anticipate you're going to need at, at retirement of age 65, and, and you're going to need this for the next 25 years, 
was um, was uh, to generate income of let's say fifty thousand dollars per year. So basically, what we would need to do is uh, at retirement, let's suppose um, we had a million dollars, we would then simply buy an annuity with that money that would that would. Uh, that would give us this $50,000 um, each year. So basically what Merton said is, is if, we, if we had enough money, basically we would want to have our own risk-free asset that we would want to invest in um, that uh, adjusted for inflation would then give us the income that, that we want. To the extent that we don't have that, then that means we need to take on more risk. So it was an interesting perspective, different ways to look at, at risk. In terms of relying on on professionals, um, Merton uh, is uh, a really big um, car guy, if you will, and and ever since he was little, he liked to tinker with uh, with with cars. Uh, very knowledgeable about cars. Um, the first stock that he invested in when he was around age 10 was in uh, GM. So he came up with a car analogy, and 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 I think this one was that really struck home for me. If if I want to buy a car, um, it really doesn't matter to me what the compression ratio is of that car, whether it's 10 to 1 or 14 to 1. And after he gave this analogy, I had to look up compression ratio. And even now, I couldn't explain to you what a compression ratio is. Maybe... Uh, uh, some of your your listeners can can explain it to me, but his point was that that you buy a car because you want to get from point A to point B. We trust the engineers who have come up with a, a design of whatever that appropriate compression ratio is. Similarly, with investing, um, it really shouldn't matter to us as an investor whether today our portfolio mix is 70% equity, 30% fixed income, or next week it's 65, 35. We just want to achieve our particular goals of, of what uh, income we can have from retirement. So as long as we give all the appropriate inputs to a trusted uh, financial advisor, they should be able to work out, and perhaps it's some kind of dynamic portfolio, uh, they, should, they should work out what it is that, uh, that, that will be best for us to invest in so long as it meets our financial goals. The next thing you talked to was Martin Leibovitz, who's, who's well known as an expert in the bond market. So I was thinking maybe his advice might be centered around bonds. But uh, what, what were your major takeaways from him? Yeah, so uh, in some ways, um, similar, although different from, from Scholes, he liked to focus on how much risk can you bear. And, and he wanted to make sure as well that, that uh, as investors, we, we don't act um, based just on our uh, emotions. And, and so um, he was an advocate to make sure that, that you can sleep well at night. Um, how one might structure a portfolio to do that, in, in many cases, he would say that that could be a simple buy and hold strategy. However, that might not always be the case. And so this is where it becomes a little more nuanced. The analogy he used is that investors um, might want to think like portfolio managers, uh, pension managers. And, and by that, he meant thinking about what's known in the pension world as, as your funding ratio. What's the value of your investments that you have now compared to the present value of, of your liabilities or the anticipated 
uh, outflows that you're going to have at retirement. If you have a high funding ratio, then you can afford to take on more risks. However, the, the paradox is it doesn't necessarily mean that, that you should be taking on more, more risk. Um, just because you have the ability to take on more risk. And so that's where one has to be more nuanced in terms of this whole notion of, uh, of, of risk. Um, clearly, in terms of his por perfect portfolio, starting with equities, but, but obviously including bonds, he was um, not surprisingly a big bond uh, proponent um, and, and was one in terms of um, uh, focusing on the importance of diversific diversification across asset classes because bonds have lower volatility than stocks and so that can help to lower the overall risk of one's portfolio. With a nod to Bill Sharp and the capital asset pricing model, uh, the way that one could operationalize this is, uh, according to Leibowitz, is think about what kind of overall beta you want to have for your portfolio and, and structure your your different asset classes, the proponent in, in uh, the proportion in equity, the proportion in fixed income on that uh, basis. He also uh, said it was important not to uh, overlook uh, in inflation, uh, a topic that is is. Um, really at the forefront uh, today. And he also said you should have a contingency plan in case um, um, something might happen that's really extraordinary. The last person I want to ask about before I uh, shift it back to Justin is Robert Schiller. And, you know, given where we are in the market right now, and given that a lot of people are talking about the potential that there are bubbles that exist right now, that, that was sort of the question I had going into that chapter is, would he advocate any sort of change, you know, when you see the potential that a bubble exists? Um, what were your major takeaways from him? Yeah, so so he certainly uh, does see uh, a lot of market timing elements, but but it isn't uh, quite as uh, straightforward. Um, he certainly believes in in diversification, and and he believes in starting with U.S. equity markets. So uh, what uh, what Bob Schiller is is known for among uh, various things, such as some of the great market timing calls that he has made in terms of. Uh, um, uh, warning of the overpriced stocks around the uh, dot-com, uh, what became known as the dot-com bubble um, in the late 1990s, and uh, the so-called real estate uh, bubble uh, more recently leading to the financial crisis. Um, he's known for what's, uh, what's called the, the CAPE ratio, or the cyclically adjusted uh, price-earnings ratio. So just to step back very briefly, a price earnings ratio looks at how much we will pay for a stock relative to what its earnings are. And so uh, a lower number indicates uh, a relatively cheap stock. For example, I might only have to pay 10 times its, its earnings versus an expensive stock, I might have to pay 25 times its, its earnings. The notion of cyclically adjusted is that um, he then said we should take uh, an average, not of just last year's earnings, because there could be, um, we could be in a recession or just coming out of a recession, but rather take the average over, uh, over, the, last, uh, over the last 10 years. And, and so that gives a more uh, stable, uh, a stable measure. So he came up with this model along with uh, John Campbell. And um, if we look at where that, um, what that CAPE ratio is for the U.S. Um, as we're speaking today in, in January 2022, 
that ratio is around 38 times compared to a long-term average of just below 17 times. So Schiller would argue that the U.S. market relative to historical metrics is very much overvalued. Uh, another counterexample would be the U.K., which is at around 15.6 times today, and so that would be undervalued. So I think if you would ask Bob Schiller today, he would say, consider investing more of your money in markets like uh, the UK market, which has a CAPE ratio that is uh, below its historical average. And so that's the notion of market timing. However, um, Schiller was, was quick to say, while he personally believed in, in market timing, he was cautious about recommending that to, uh, that to individuals. Um, because uh, you could uh, end up uh, uh, underperforming if you don't get it uh, quite right. Schiller also was a proponent for going beyond stocks and, and bonds, investing in, in real estate, um, inflation-protected uh, bonds or so-called tips, and uh, commodities as, as well. So yes, uh, a bit of market timing on a personal perspective, but not something that he would recommend the a typical individual uh, investor to uh, undertake. There's two remaining investors <clears throat> that you spoke with. Um, the first is Charlie Ellis, who, um, if people don't know, he's a big proponent of, <clears throat> excuse me, index investing. Um, doesn't really, uh, you know, he knows it's very hard, even for the best professional investors, to um, out outperform the market after fees, um, which is why he kind of supports index investing for most investors. But he also had some interesting thoughts on bonds and taxes and some other areas. So what were some of the interesting things that you um, learned from that conversation with, with Ellis? Yeah, a little bit of context in, in terms of what you were referring to. He was probably the first investment professional to public qu publicly question the whole strategy of active management, which was which was a standard uh, approach um, up to the 1970s. In 1975, he came out with this uh, uh, famous article called The Loser's Game. And in 1998, he followed it up with a, a best-selling book called Winning the Loser's Game. And really, this was inspired by a book by Simon Ramo, uh, called Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Tennis Player. And, and Ramo, if you get a chance to look at his background, really colorful individual. He was a co-founder of an aerospace uh, firm, an inventor, and a best-selling author, lived to 103. Ramo's point was that as it pertained to tennis, there are really two games of tennis, one that the professionals play and the other that, that the, the amateurs play. And they both use the same equipment, the same court, the same dress code, the same way of keeping score, but they're played very differently. For the, uh, for the, um, the, the professionals, they're extremely good at what they do, they rarely make mistakes, and they force others to make errors. And that's how they win most of the times. For us as, uh, as amateur tennis player, we play a totally different game. Um, when, we, when we play, we lose points. We double fault. We hit the net. We hit the ball out of the court. At least I can speak personally in terms of my, my tennis game. And so Ramos' message was that um, don't try to act like a professional. Don't try to win, but rather your strategy should be to not lose. Avoid the unforced errors. And it struck Ellis, it struck Ellis that, that the same applied to investing. And so the way to not lose was to invest in passive index funds. And the timing was perfect because this is when Bogle was just coming up with this first 
um, index mutual fund. And so the, 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 the two really went together. So he was, uh, Alice was a big proponent of index funds. Index funds beyond stocks, he would also uh, advocate for bond index funds and also uh, international index funds as, as well. So again, his, his key message was avoid the, the blunders, keep your emotions in check. And, and investing really comes down to who you are as well what your age is, how many dependents you have, how much investment knowledge you, you have, what's your income, what's your spending habits, um, how much risk you are willing to take on, and what kind of access you have to information. The last investor that you spoke with is, I think, would be considered one of the more optimistic uh, academics out there, and that's Jeremy Siegel um, from Wharton. Um, and I think you know his advice was consistent with his belief in investing in stocks for the long run. But what else did you learn from your conversation with Siegel that might be different than what most people might think of when they think of Jeremy Siegel? Sure, you're absolutely right. He's sometimes referred to as a as a perma bull, given that he's he's always so so bullish. What's what's fascinating is that uh, one of his uh, best friends is uh, Bob Schiller. They they met at uh, at MIT, both PhD students, and and Schiller has this reputation of a of a perma bear. So, uh, what's fascinating is how much they agree on on things, um, but yet have these reputations as the perma bull and and the perma bear. So um, Jeremy Siegel made his mark by by looking at at a, 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 an extremely long. Um, data set of uh, U.S. stock prices and bonds and, and other asset classes going back over over a century. And um, what he found was fascinating as it pertained to uh, equities, if we look at the inflation-adjusted return on equities versus other asset classes. It was remarkable how, over various periods, how steady the uh, the real return was for stocks. And it's been around 7 percent versus other asset classes those returns have not been as uh, as as reliable as in in stocks what was also um, an eye-opener in terms of what Siegel highlighted was that the longer your horizon in fact um, the greater uh, the greater chance that you were going to have positive returns from uh, from stocks versus even um, fixed income, even government uh, bond investing. And so what he advocated is that the longer your investment horizon, the greater proportion of your wealth should be invested in, in stocks. Um, from an international investing perspective, um, he felt that uh, about a third of your investments could go into international investing. I think being pra pragmatic, um, Siegel did see a room for individual investing beyond index funds. And, and so his advice uh, for those who wanted to uh, invest in individual stocks was uh, to focus in particular on, on stocks that, uh, that provide stable cash flows that, that, that pay dividends consistently. He also thought that, that going beyond stocks and bonds, you should consider real, uh, real estate investment uh, trusts as another type of investment. Uh, out of all of these individuals, I think Siegel's the one out there more making, you know, commenting on the market. <clears throat> but, you know, at least from my perspective, I think he's been 
largely right with many of his predictions, which you can't say that about a lot of people. So I think that optimistic long-term view of what stocks can do um, and have done, uh, you know, is reflected in a lot of his sort of forecasts. And he's been right over the past, you know, 10 years plus within this market, which is interesting. So I have to ask, no, did you guys try to get to Warren Buffett? Uh, we did not. Uh, we did not try. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I just wanted to ask that one because it. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe maybe if there's a um, perfect portfolio to Buffett can be on the list of uh, potential people. Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. And 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 obviously we we felt that so much had been written about and and by Warren Buffett that I think um, um, we we. We uh, we can find uh, his wisdom in many cases. What what was interesting just uh, along those lines is that while very different in in approaches, um, Gene Fama's work really really validated this whole value investing approach that that um, Buffett is well known for. I mean, there's so much you know just in the 45 minutes we've been talking. I mean, there's so much knowledge and wisdom sort of packed into each one of these chapters and these that these individuals have you know shared and that you've written about but if you were to try to sum up this advice um what would be the the key sort of takeaways the framework maybe that you could the common denominator across all of these different guys in terms of what an individual investor can learn yeah so so this really is is the crux of of I think the uh, the corner we painted ourselves into after we had conducted these 10 interviews, our challenge was then to synthesize what everyone had said and to see whether there was were some commonalities. And and so in the last chapter of the book, that's what we try to do. We, we try to put everything together and we come up with what we call our, our 3P approach that um, as it pertains to investing, there are some common principles there's a process and there's a path to that perfect portfolio. And and the title of our book, I should emphasize, focuses on this pursuit of a perfect portfolio. And so as as I'll sum up um, and, and to give away the punchline, there isn't one particular portfolio that is that that fits all. But there are some some principles or, or really, I, I would say, a, a checklist as a starting point. And, and we came up with with seven uh, items. Uh, seven things that you should that all investors should uh, should should follow. One is to um, determine how much expertise you have. So some do, doing some self reflection. How much time? How much energy are you uh, prepared to do in terms of investing? And this should inform whether you want to go the do it yourself route or whether you might consider a, a financial advisor. The second one is you've got to identify what your current and your future. Um, financial needs are, are going to be. And the way that, that you should approach this, and, and, and it's easier said than done, but, but to start with your life goals and then translate those life goals into financial goals and see what you have and, and see what your needs are going to be. The third one, and, and this was consistent throughout the book, is to really understand how much risk you're prepared to take on. What's your what's your financial risk comfort zone? At, at what point do you do you really begin to freak out um, as it pertains to investment uh, volatility? The fourth one is that we really encourage every investor to come up with an investment philosophy, um, and and through the book. 
there's actually not just one investment philosophy, but there are many investment philosophies. And the best contrast, I think, is between Gene Fama and Bob Schiller. Gene Fama, uh, very much the efficient markets uh, hypothesis perspective, buy and hold, some kind of index fund, perhaps with a little bit of tilt to uh, value and, uh, and small cap stocks. Bob Schiller, more of, a, of an active uh, investor, and, and it's ironic that, uh, that the two uh, were co-recipients in the same year of the, of the Nobel Prize, with Schiller really emphasizing the uh, emotional aspect that, that drives a lot of investments. Number five is to simply come up with a list of not only the assets that you currently hold, but what kind of assets are you prepared to hold? And there may be some that, that you aren't. For example, derivatives might be something that, that if you don't really understand something, then, then you shouldn't be investing in it. Um, and I think um, many of today's investors uh, overlook that, that simple premise. Uh, number six is to really have a sense of, of the investment environment that we're in relative to historical norms. And, and by that, we can simply get a sense of, um, are we in an expansion? Are we in a recessionary phase? Um, and, and so um, we go through these, these cycles and there can be some very different investment outcomes. And the final one uh, with, with a nod to, um, to Charlie Ellis and others is to avoid obvious investing mistakes. Don't pay higher fees than, than you need to. Uh, don't need to needlessly incur taxes. Um, don't just invest because that person on the, the golf course seemed like a really friendly person and so I'll trust all my money to, to, to them. And uh, his name happened to be Bernie. So you, you really want to avoid some of these obvious uh, obvious mistakes. And so these are really generic elements that I think um, all investors should follow. Yeah, those are, those are excellent. And I think if investors had that checklist and were willing to put in the work and do the work and actually outline those things, um, I think it, you know, probably outcomes would be um, a lot better for, for many investors. But I think like you guys pointed out, um, you know, that checklist takes work and effort and it's not, it's not just something static that you do once. And, you know, it does change over time as, as goals and risks and time horizons change. Um, the other point that I think is, um, probably very important for a checklist is, and I'd like you to comment on this is, you know, if you, if you have that um, list in front of you, if you know that those are your, your, your goal or the guiding posts, if you will, to keep you in your lane, you know, you're probably less likely to make a big mistake, bad mistakes, try to time the market. I think it, it, it will, it would help investors more consistent, be more disciplined, more consistent with their investing process and behaviors and get them to stick with the plan for a longer period of time and therefore giving them you know, better outcomes um, in the future. So I think anytime investors can do stuff like that, it's, it's a good thing. Absolutely. I think discipline was the key word that you used. Absolutely. Our standard closing question, Steve, and we've hit on, there, there's probably so many different ways you can go with this, but, um, you know, based on your experience in the market, based on the research you've done, talking to all these great investors and academics, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? So I think this this really came from a number of uh, the, the luminaries. 
And the, the, the key piece of advice is to really understand that we all have simply just four levers that are available. The first one is the target size of your financial goals. So we can think big or we can think medium size, but it all starts with what those financial goals are. So we can adjust that as well, but we have to use that as a starting point. That's a lever that, that we have, what kind of lifestyle we want to have in, in retirement. Uh, do we want to own a cottage or, or not? These types of things. Secondly is, is how much do you have and how much are you willing to contribute regularly to your savings and investing? This doesn't happen magically. Uh, back to this whole notion of, of discipline. Um, there are strategies of paying yourself first and, and making that investment be a 10% of, of whatever your income might be. Um, but really thinking hard about how much you're willing to contribute to your savings. And again, that's, uh, that's up to you, whether it's, whether it's 2%, whether it's 10%, whether it's 15%. The third is the length of time you have to achieving your, your goals. We might all want it by tomorrow. We might all want to retire by age 50 and, and realistically that might not happen. So that time until you achieve these, these goals is, is really going to be up to you. And obviously the longer that it is, then the more achievable it is. And the final one is the expected return you're going to get on your savings. If you are going to put 100% of your investments in treasury bills, you're going to have a much lower expected return than if you put 100% of your investments in, uh, in equities. And, and so if we think of the first three of those elements, the size of your financial goals, the willingness for you to invest on a regular basis, and the length of time that you have, once we take those three into account, then the expected return should fall out of that. And that expected return will then determine what your perfect portfolio is. Is it more heavily weighted to equities or is it more heavily weighted to safer assets? So if, if you think in terms of those four levers, and really those are, those are all the levers that, that, that we have, that should help you to uh, determine what your own perfect portfolio is going to look like. Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing all this uh, wisdom with us today. Um, I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this discussion. Um, normally, I ask where people can go to find out more about you. I'm, I'm guessing we'll put a link right to the Amazon page for the book. But is there any place else that um, listeners can go to learn more about the research and what you're working on? Sure. So um, we have our, our website dedicated to the book, and it's uh, it's a, a long name, but a long URL, but it's just the name of the book. Uh, uh, in pursuit of the perfect um, we have various resources uh, there. We have all of the ten video interviews with the with the luminaries, and uh, we also have a, a, a short self assessment um, tool that uh, that will help to point you in the right direction and give you some things to to think about. Very nice. We will put a link to that uh, site in the show notes as well. So thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's my, uh, my pleasure, Justin and, and Jack. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. 
Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.